Hello and welcome to Birkbeck Voices. My name is Jess Simons and today I'm joined by Dr Claire Makepeace who completed her PhD here at Birkbeck and is now an honorary research fellow at the college. She's a historian, a writer, a lecturer and a consultant in the cultural history of the First and Second World Wars and her work looks at prisoners of war, specifically those in Europe during the Second World War and the measures they took to cope and come to terms with wartime imprisonment. Perhaps the most inventive of these measures was putting on pantomimes with prisoners dressed as female impersonators. Claire's recently published a book, Captives of War, and she joins us today to talk about her research. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. Now, first of all, let's talk a bit about what I just mentioned, the female impersonators in prisoner of war camps. Um, I read a recent article from you on this and was just blown away by it. I'd never come across anything like it. Let's delve a bit into the practice. Just, Just how common was it? Well, theatrical life and entertainments were part and parcel of life in captivity from when the first prisoners of war were captured at the start of the war. But as more and more POWs entered captivity and the camps became more established, they became more sophisticated affairs. And in the majority of plays, there are female characters. And in the POW camp, there were no women. All prisoners of war were men. So female impersonators took on those roles and they were therefore a very common part of theatrical life. Um, But also um, what surprised me a bit was that they also appeared in other contexts. So I read of female impersonators appearing at New Year's Eve parties, at tea and sewing parties, um, at fun fairs, at camp dances. So all sorts of different types of contexts. How did it all begin then? Where did the idea come from? It was, female impersonation was actually quite a common part of life in the armed forces in both the First and Second World War. So it wouldn't have been by any means an alien concept to these men. So they probably took on what they had already seen happening in aspects of military life and and incorporated that into the camps. And so how deep has your research delved into this practice? I mean, did you look at where they got their supplies from and that sort of thing? Yeah, the reason why I focused on this um, in my book was because uh, a number of the POWs whose diaries and letters and scrapbooks I read, which were composed during captivity, refer to it. So I thought, well, this this must be a, an important bit to look at in terms of how prisoners of war coped with their all-male environment. Um, and yeah, so I looked at how POWs reacted to the female impersonators, but also a little bit about the kind of practical practicalities involved. Um, and the supplies... Well, POWs are really good at turning their hands to anything um, and and grabbing whatever they could lay their hands on and making it sort of a practical use. And the same happened with the dresses that female impersonators wore. So um, they would be made from shirts, from sheets, even from mosquito netting for those POWs who were held in Italy. Um, I've read of a woman's wig being made from the string that bound Red Cross parcels that were sent to POWs and even makeup being concocted from uh, margarine, uh, dyes from crepe paper and talcum powder. So it's a really innovative. Um, But another fascinating example, um, and this gives an insight into sort of captor-captive relations, 
Uh, at Offlag 5A, they didn't need to be innovative. Um, Offlag 5A was a camp for officers in southwest Germany. Mm-hmm. They put on a pantomime Puss in Boots, and they were sent, sent an entire set of costumes and wigs from the local opera company in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that camp, reportedly, captives had very good relations with their captors. Okay, so the, the captors actually supported uh, the practice? Yeah, they did. Uh, in fact, the guards saw these entertainments as a good way of keeping POWs busy and occupied. Mm. Um, they often seemed to appreciate their efforts themselves because they would perhaps sit in the front rows of these performances. They would take photographs of the sets and casts. We have lots of photographs um, in existence now of, of these performances and even would give POWs films so they could take images themselves. Wow, okay. So keeping that in mind and also when you're talking about um, how you were looking through letters and correspondences from the officers and prisoners at that time, mm. it sounds like you've really got into the psychology of being a captive um, yeah. at that time. Yeah, yeah. Female impersonation takes one of two forms. You've got a mimesis where the female impersonator tries to make the difference between them and a woman as minimal as possible. And you've got mimicry, where that's the pantomime dame, squawky and clumsy. In the letters and diaries I read, by far and away, the type of female impersonator that was commented upon and appreciated by the POWs were the mimetic performances. So those where they try to make as realistic as possible performances of being a woman Um, and that fits in with uh, how anthropologists have understood female impersonation so they they explain one form of female impersonation uh, they call it the safety valve interpretation of drag and basically female impersonation serves the role of introducing the opposite sex into a single sex society Mm -hmm. these were all male camps and POWs um, wanted wanted to see women and a number of POWs comment in their diaries of how these female impersonators created a sort of more normal atmosphere. And that would explain why they valued the mimetic performances so much, because uh, mimicry, those who mimicked women, the pantomime dame, really draw attention to the fact that they're not women. True. But the uh, mimetic performances uh, were very realistic performances of women. And in fact, and this is really interesting, a couple of POWs commented on how these men were better at being female than women themselves. And that's interesting because paradoxically, they're praising men for their femininity, but in doing so are asserting their male superiority. Yes, I was going to ask if the mimetic side of things ever caused psychological confusion for the prisoners. It did, it did. And this this was something that surprised me. Prisoners were writing really readily in their letters home and in their diaries about how attractive they found these women. Um, and, and the performances seemed to like go beyond, they seemed to seek the boundaries of the stage. So I read an example of how a female impersonator got mobbed as she came off the stage at the end of the performance. Um, in a, another diary written by Captain Mansell, who features a lot in my book, he he wrote of how uh, the fellow POWs in his room became bashful when a female impersonator entered. And at Starlag 383, which was a camp for non-commissioned officers, 
they turned Pinky Smith, uh, a very beautiful female impersonator, into a camp pinup. Oh. And 14,000 orders were placed for a photograph of Pinky Smith. And, and these are interesting because there seemed to be a blurring to me of sort of heterosexual desire and homoerotic desire because ultimately we know and they knew that these female impersonators were men mm. and obviously needed to you know how do I explain this and having read what other historians have written um, about male sexuality in the era of the second world war I concluded that it shows that male sexuality in that era was much more fluid than it is today today we link male sexuality very closely to experience and identity but in the time of the second world war it was much more fluid and i think that explains the sort of acceptable way in which the boundaries between heterosexual desire and homoerotic desire blurred that is very interesting and, and i sort of wondered about the psychology psychological side of things um, after the war and whether you sort of studied any correspondence um, from these prisoners or any kind of diary entries after the war and whether that kind of culture continued? Well, that, that's a really good question. I think actually we could explain what was happening in the camps by some sort of ideas for transgressing in this kind of closed off all male unnatural environment. But actually having read about what was happening in the British Army at the time of the Second World War, um, and looked at what other historians are saying. I, th I think the way in which POWs were reacting to female impersonators was actually reflective of broader societal attitudes of the time. So it wouldn't therefore be that they kind of came back and, and things changed or shifted. I think this was the mentality, this, this, as I've said, this, this male sexuality being more fluid and being less closely linked to identity or experience than it is today was something that was sort of much more prominent in British society okay. than just something happening in the camps. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I think if my book looks at the emotional experience of captivity, and I think if you want to do that, you've got to look beyond the war. You've got to look beyond liberation because for many of these men, that experience stayed with them mm. for the rest of their lives. Unfortunately, the diaries and letters all ended at the time of liberation. There was no need to keep them. And, and the diaries and letters, those personal narratives, inform the bulk of my book. But I do look at homecoming and I draw upon uh, quite an extensive set of psychiatric research and reports which looked into how POWs readjusted to their freedom. And, and talking about your book, um, Captives of War, what inspired you to undertake this kind of research and what inspired you to write that book? It was my grandfather. He was a POW. Um, he was held in Poland for five years, so he was captured in France in 1940 and he rarely spoke about what he went through but towards the end of his life I started to encourage him to write a memoir because he was opening up a little bit more about what what happened he'd give us the odd snippet and his story was so interesting and I didn't want it to be lost mm -hmm. and he always fobbed me off and then one day when I asked him again he said why would I record my story it would just be a tale of humiliation 
And at that moment, I realised the way he understood his experience was so different from the way I understood it. So I admired him and I was proud of him for what he had endured and witnessed and survived. And yet he was ashamed and I wanted to understand his perspective. So I read what had been written on captivity and no one had focused specifically on that psychological, emotional experience. So I decided to do a thesis on that and that turned that into my book. Dived into it. I did. It's interesting that you talk about that concept of prisoners of war. It's quite a, perhaps a contemporary concept of prisoners of war being quite heroic and, you know, stoic throughout the whole process. But then the the reality of the emotions behind the experiences is often quite different for the people that have actually gone through that. Um, And and it seems that you've really shed that kind of light on your book. What's the reaction been like to what you've written? Uh, it's been very positive um, from the I've had a few reviews and I've been incredibly pleased with them um, I've also had a number of the relatives of the POWs who feature in my book read my work and um, they've also thankfully been very positive it's a hard one for an academic historian because I feel like I have I have two sets of audiences in a way and I my priority because I'm a scholar is to be faithful to the academic work to be academically rigorous to be as objective as possible Um, but at the same time you know that the relatives of these men because my book focuses upon 75 POWs Mm. the relatives of these men will be reading it Mm. perhaps from a slightly different perspective and whilst my primary concern has been has to be my scholarship there's a bit of me that also doesn't want to let them down and um, I've, so I've been really pleased by their responses and I consciously wrote my book so it would be accessible to a broader audience than sort of undergraduates and postgraduates. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted it to have that broad appeal to anyone interested in captivity and I, I by the reactions I think I've, I've managed that and um, thankfully also my publisher Cambridge University Press have marketed it at a price that doesn't make it just exclusively preserve of libraries. And are you going to continue on your research now that you've published your book? What's next for you? Oh, I'm doing some bits and pieces. Um, I'm still looking at POWs. I've done separately quite a lot of work on Far East POWs. And at the moment, I'm doing something on the war graves of uh, Far East POWs who died on the Thai Burma Railway and uh, looking at those um but at the and and then more generally i'm thinking about we've got the centenary of the end of the first world war coming up so i'm thinking about broader projects around that exciting look forward to seeing what you're up to next thank you thank you so much for joining us we'll link to claire's book captives of war in the description of this podcast and you can find out more about her work on her website that's warfarehistorian.org thank you again claire thank you very much